Hello, hello. This is Rebecca Radio. I'm Maggie Bacella. And this is Does It Get the Pass? A podcast where we arbitrarily decide whether rom-coms get the pass. And today we have our first ever industry guest on the show. He is a writer, director, and producer who is single-handedly working on saving the romantic comedy, both in his feature films and every day on TikTok. You might recognize his name from films like Dating in New York or the more recent At Midnight, which we covered all the way back when this podcast first started. And he's got a brand new Christmas rom-com called Xmas starring Leighton Meester and Robbie Amell out on Freebie on November 17th. It is Mr. Jonah Feingold. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be on the show. Loved your dissection of At Midnight. I listened to that when I was at the gym and I thought you all picked up on so many things that I did and tried to do and then no one else cared about. But like the whole socioeconomical element of the entire thing was like a huge, 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 huge part of it, Um, Mm -hmm. which and so I really appreciate your thoughtful analysis of the movie and what we were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I revisited that one this week as I was preparing for the show and I watched Dating in New York for the first time. And I was like, this is because I hadn't watched it since we recorded the episode back in, I think, February. And I was like, oh, this this hits so well. Like I mm-hmm. we were the last episode we recorded, we were talking about comfort food rom-coms and, and at midnight definitely hits it. And so does so does Dating in New York. Like you have a really deep understanding of like why people love rom-coms, I feel like. It's, you know, I think comfort movies are the films that I grew up on and I'm really happy watching and like I have no problem being like that's what I want to be, you know, and mm-hmm. the, the comfort movie. Um, there's also obviously a part of it that stems from like being deeply afraid of exploring more serious things, you know, both in my personal life and artistic life. So it's kind of like art imitates life and life imitates art. But, you know, hopefully I think we all know that people like rom-coms because of their comfortability and and uh, especially modern rom-coms, which I, I feel like they don't necessarily do that as much anymore. They try to have some sort of insane hook or twist where, oh, one of them is, you know, terminally ill or someone's on the moon um, <laughs> and can't come back from the moon. I, I, don't, I haven't seen this one, but you know which one, like this HBO Max. Yeah, right? yeah, I don't yeah. know. So I'm just like, what if just two people like talk and walk around and it's like super fall all the time <laughs> and it's like and it's like really comfy. Yeah, my friends and I. Um, So I do this thing like outside of the podcast just with a couple of friends called like lesbian movie night. And we usually cool. watch like action movies, but we've been getting into what we call like hangout movies lately. Mm. And Xmas was 100 percent a hangout movie, which is basically like where the entire story takes place in like either like one or two locations. And it's literally just people sitting around and talking and hanging out and like. I don't know. I love a hangout movie. I love it because they are so comforting. They're very domestic or they're just very like tight knit to your hometown and everything. And so I think that's one of the things that I really liked about Xmas a lot. But at midnight, I, I, I hesitate to say that you were um, you're not exploring serious things because like at midnight was really special for me because I'm also um, Hispanic, like Monica Barbaro mm-hmm. is. And like that was like a really big deal for me, like getting to see someone who looked like me who has a similar background to me getting to be you know the star of a rom-com especially one that doesn't know how to speak like with a character that doesn't know how to speak spanish because i also don't know how to speak spanish Mm. so it was very very important to me and so i i wanted to thank you personally um because i thought it was a very serious rom-com i mean that's still very comforting at the same time the stakes in that one are super real and i mean with the spanish there was a whole part part during the prep process where i wanted to have monica's character learn spanish throughout the movie so at first you would see her interpretation of the language like 
through subtitles and it would get better and better throughout the movie because she started to understand certain things. Ultimately, with Paramount Plus and the way that they do closed captions, there was just too much coordination that would have required to be able to do that the way I wanted it to. But I think that was one of the great things about that movie is there's like a language barrier, but it's not about a language barrier, but there is something subconsciously happening there. And even with the Spanish, I think the best scenes in the movie are the Spanish speaking scenes. I think the whole sequence when you go back to meet the family, I, I'll look at that and be like, who the fuck made this? Like, this is awesome. Like, this is what I want this movie to be. Um, and yeah, and also going back to your to your hangout thing, by the I meant to ask, would you consider Casablanca a hangout movie because they're just kind yes. of hanging out in a bar the entire time? <laughs> that I think that is the peak hangout movie because it's literally all taking place at one location. Right. Like the less locations that like a movie takes place at, the more the likelihood of it being like a um a hangout movie increases. Well, there is a psychological element to that. You know, there's an article that said, like, why was The Office such a classic rewatch and comfort show? And it's because it takes place in the same location. And this is why a lot of shows like sitcoms or, you know, we, the shows that you watch before bed, I, I bet there's a correlation between how many locations those shows take place in versus how comfortable you are watching them because you kind of know it's going to happen. You know, no matter what in The Office, it's going to take place in The Office. I mean, Ironically, my favorite episode is the dinner party episode, but that takes place, you know, at a dinner party, which we've all been at to one in some capacity. I wanted to ask, you started off with indie stuff. You obviously started with Dating in New York, which premiered at Tribeca. So what was the, pro like, how did you go from doing indie stuff with that to studio stuff? And, you know, how is that process and involvement kind of different from streamer to streamer since you've worked with two different ones now? Yeah, I mean, I'll be as specific as possible because I think I've never heard it you know i would have loved this information at a at one point in my career so when dating in new york comes out so when you want to go up for a studio job which is to say studio i think there's like a glamorous word to what that means now with streamers that has changed when i i have done at midnight i've done xmas these are studio films but by no means are they studio rates you know the budgets are still in the three to five million dollar range which is by all means tiny compared to bigger movies it's also because the genre rom-coms they don't put big budgets into the rom-coms these days um also you are sort of you have the infrastructure of a studio so the marketing team is wonderful and big but you don't necessarily have the 60-day shoot you know or the huge fucking trailers and set pieces so when dating came out that was a movie where i knew to be up for the jobs that i wanted to which is like night the museum is like my dream like night the museum three or four that's it. I'm like, that's all I want to do. And so to get there, you need to just make features. So Dating in New York was a $200,000 movie. Uh, and then once you make a feature film, that can be sent to other people. And if you're an executive or an actor or a producer, these are the types of people who will pick directors. You know, in the case of At Midnight, Diego Bonetta had a deal with Viacom, had a deal with Paramount+. Plus. He saw dating, liked it, and wanted to bring me into that conversation. Same with his producers. So then they bring me to Paramount, and the Paramount executives approve me through that process, which is pretty easy when your movie star, Diego Bonetta, wants you to be that person. And we go about our way. And they're able, you know, Diego is able to point to moments in dating and say, do something like this or you know, how can we do that here? And that's obviously very flattering, but something that I'm very comfortable doing. Then you have to ask yourself, do you want to do this? You're going to be, 
you're, the artist in you is going to have to make sacrifices. So then at midnight comes out and then you're in those conversations again and you have your agents and your agents send you in these different lists to various studios, something called an ODA, Open Directing Assignment, which is when, in the case of Xmas, the director had fallen off of the project for various reasons, dates, timing, all this stuff. So they had a start date. They had an obligation to Amazon to deliver a Christmas movie. They did not have a director to get the actors excited. Yeah had to have a director on board um so it's always a like chicken before the egg and i got sent the script and i got i heard the log line and i was like okay cool that seems like up my alley xmas seems like literally something that i would write down in a notes app and that's how we that's how it came to be and then i was hired and i went to Kelowna, canada for you know three months all right because like one of my questions that i had when watching Xmas was like, I was struck just like how painfully like my own family, like the Scroops were yeah. um, because my family is divorced. And so like, that's been my Christmas for the last like about 10 years of my life. And, wow. it, and like, I literally texted Maggie halfway through watching. I'm like, I feel like he stalked my family. So um, yeah, the question was like, where did the plot come from? Did it happen in real life? Do you know, like um, if it came to the writer, um, what was the whole like thought process behind the story? Dan Steele wrote the script. I had only connected with him after we filmed because we filmed during the writer's strikes. There was a dis there was a distance between us, but I think it's loosely based off of his life in a certain way um, from what I've heard. And mm -hmm. but I think we all relate to that. I think the idea of keeping in touch with an ex um, and particularly wanting to keep in touch with an ex's family is something that we've all you're either the person you know, on the press day for the film, it was a conversation. You're either the person who's done it or the person who's thought about doing it. And so in that regard, I think it's a very, you know, relatable theme of of wanting to keep in touch with the family of somebody that you dated because the family was cool. And just because you break up with the person doesn't mean you got to break up with their family too. That's my stance on it. Yeah. So that must no, have I been a, a quick turnaround uh, shoot then if you shot during the writer's strike. We shot May and June. Oh, it was a it was an insane turnaround. It's like, but this is the thing with some of these holiday movies is that most Christmas movies are filmed the summer before the Christmas that they come out. I don't know why. I do not know if you know. It's also confusing because we know Christmas is coming. Christmas never changes. So why not film it in a, a year before? Like, why set yourself up to not have time? You know, that being said, a lot of credit to the producers for being able to turn around the movie that quickly. And you know, when you get hired for a job like that, you have to kind of be in a position to be able to do it. You know, I don't know if anyone here is a Harry Potter fan, but so far, every movie I've made is kind of like a horcrux. It's a part of my soul that becomes detached because I've sort of given a year of my life to this, both in my longevity of my life and stress, but also like, you know, my commitment to it. And I, I think that when you, you're challenged and tasked with making a movie like that, um, I, I feel very lucky that our movie gets to be released. I mean, with especially with these announcements, you know, where you can cl complete a film and the film won't even come out after it's done. I can't imagine. And so, sure, the, the, the price I pay for a quick turnaround and committing really hard and saying bye to my family and friends for three for three months makes up for it when I know for a fact, hey, November 17th in, you know, a little under a week from today, this movie will be released, you know, and I, I feel very lucky for that. And as far as, as directing goes, you are, your first film was you wrote and directed, and then you're working on one now where you are not only writing and directing, but you're also the lead. Do you have a preference for working on, like in a dream world, do you have a preference for working on things that you've written or does it kind of not matter where the material comes from as long as you're employed and it's something that you're passionate about? 
I think it's the latter. I think being employed is always good. Being able to pay rent in this little office that I'm sitting in is nice. And I like when I write stuff. It's also very challenging. The, the pros and cons. You write something, you have complete control over it. That's also the con, which is to say when you need to make a change, you're the one who has to go find the time to do that when you're in prep or in production. Um, this new movie I'm working on right now, 31 Candles, is a completely independent movie. It's a romantic comedy about a 30-year-old guy who has his bar mitzvah at the age of 30. And I needed to make something that was like artistic and like I didn't have to listen to a soul. I didn't want to like I, the only person I have to obey is myself. And obviously not many filmmakers are granted that ability, but our our, our budget's fairly low. And it's just the mentality of I have amazing producers who understand the vision, who also bring ideas that like I would I agree with, you know, people who are like not to hire. They're people that we want to collaborate and go tell a story. So it's been really therapeutic and it's been also the biggest challenge in my entire life uh, to perform in, in the character and in the role directed and have written it. And of course, the financing, like put together the financing where the producer had. But it's a wonderful education on how movies get made. And hopefully I'm like just young enough that I can, you know, fail here on this capacity and like learn. And that will be a lesson that I can take for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I love that you, you're so open about this, whether it's on this platform or especially on TikTok, you know, I, I've been following you on TikTok for an extended period of time. And I love how open you are with being willing to discuss how these things work, because I mean, I'm a film journalist. I see kind of the innards of how things work a lot of the time, but most people don't. And it's really refreshing to see someone who's so willing to discuss every little teeny tiny piece of the process. Yeah, I never understood why people weren't more open about it and and as specific as possible. And TikTok is wonderful because it democratizes the whole industry. You know, there's no gatekeeping. And I have so many wonderful friends that I have met on TikTok who don't gatekeep, don't gatekeep their process. And I think when you would YouTube, oh, how do you make a movie? Every Everyone who comes to a film school, I'd be like, honestly, like, you know, old white male dude comes in and he's like, just tell a great story. And it's like, that's not fucking helpful. That's not what is, yes, we have to tell a great story, but what about like, where does the financing come from? Where does, how do, wh what happens when I cut my movie together and I think it sucks? You know, like, how do I get the movie out there? What happens when um, your actor, uh, you know, drops out the day before shooting? Um, what happens when oh. you wake up and think that you're, you know, your your idea that you thought was so great was is a bad idea. You know, like there's so much of this of this game that is is just not discussed, the psychological elements and also just the amount of fucking work it takes, you know, how hard it is. And and no one sets out to make a bad movie. We all know this. You know, everyone sets out to make something good. And the truth of the matter is you have 60 different people minimum in the way of your vision and the and the and the result. And amongst those people, a you have to assume none of them are trained in the art of being kind and being creative and collaborative. And if you do are unlucky enough to find those people, then you'll maybe work with them forever. A la like a Wes Anderson or someone who works with the same actors and producers, or that's the outcome. You know, that's the outcome. Sometimes you have a miserable experience making a great movie. And sometimes you have an amazing experience making a bad movie. And that's like the weird curse of the business. But I think it is an important era for uh, for filmmakers to be more transparent, especially of the new generation of filmmakers who are more entrepreneurial, more self-generating, more uh, group people that never been any gotten nothing ever handed to them before. You know? Yeah, I had some like like I 
have like a lot of friends who like want to get into the industry. And I've definitely thought about it for myself before. And I teach writing and stuff right now at a um, a college here in Boston. Mm. And it's been like, like, like watching people's like stories come to life. And I'm like, man, you could make a really good movie out of like your meditative essay, man. Mm. But um, like, and so that's something that I see a lot. And like, I've definitely thought about doing the whole like, screenwriting thing and writing stuff yeah. so like this like that's why I've, I've appreciated a lot of the things that you've been talking about today and just like on your like social media platforms um but i do like i do have some like more like rom-commy questions yeah. for you yeah like um so we talk a lot on this podcast about how much we wish certain actors like would become romantic leads or return to their origins as like rom-com actors so like okay. Um, which actors and actresses do you want to see make that jump into them or go back to them? And I think this connects to a question that Maggie also has about okay. um, who you want to work with. Oh, oh, okay. Because I can I can link those two things pretty quickly. So my I've been thinking a lot about that question. I think, you know, I missed the era of movie star rom-com actors. I think sadly, it's the most recent thing to have stopped, right? If you even up until 2010, when you had Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler doing a movie like Just Go With It, you know, that was movie stars in rom-coms. You know, Sandler and Aniston is the same as Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn or, or you know, or um, Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Henry, is it Fonda? Who, who was in um, Lady E with him? Henry Fonda. Like, I think it's Henry you know, Fonda, yeah. Like yeah. it's the that's to the same thing to me. I can I will write that essay and say that those two are, that's the same. It is the same thing. We have not seen it, and I know why. I have a theory on why. The reason is because budgets have lowered in the genre, uh, so you can't pay for the movie stars. Therefore, you can't pay for the directors to attract the movie stars, um, and vice versa. You can't pay for the actors to attract the high level directors. So that's why I don't think we're seeing movie stars and rom coms anymore. Who would I love to resurrect back to the genre? Honestly, Drew Barrymore, I think she is so good. I think I would love to resurrect Sandler back in the in the rom-com game. He's so he was such a great rom-com lead. Uh, wow. I, I would say Cameron Diaz, an all time home run rom-com actress. I would love to see. Um, gosh, I mean, I would love to see who else do I want to see? I mean, like the 90s era stars, I, I, I'm kind of just like recycling like Tom Hanks. Let's get him back in the game. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Who are you? Who do you guys want to see back in the rom-com genre? Is that what you meant by the question, by the way? Who do we want to bring back into it? OK. Yeah, because um, like we were talking for set it up about how we want Glenn Powell to come back and do more rom-coms like he used to. And um, Zoe Kazan, who did like a like a big. Oh, my God. Zoe Kazan. What was that movie that she did that was incredible? Besides, Ruby Sparks was one, and then she did another what if one with Daniel Radcliffe. What if with Daniel Radcliffe is very good. Yeah, and The Big Sick with um and The Big Sick Camille Nanjiani, but that was like five years ago, I think. Yeah, The Big Sick was great, and then you just said Glenn Powell. Glenn Powell was amazing in Set It Up. Set It Up is such a good movie. I feel like he doesn't. I'm so confused by what's going on with his perspective on rom coms because he's got the one with Sydney Sweeney coming out, mm -hmm. which. I haven't seen anything besides the poster and their viral marketing stunts of are they dating or are they not dating? But I uh, I think that's cool. I kind of, you know, I don't know. I liked him and Zoe Deutsch a lot. I thought they had great chemistry. I'd love to see more of them doing something together. Zoe Deutsch, we could get back in the rom-com game. She feels like someone who should be back in there. Yeah, she just did one last year for, I think, Prime Video. It was something from Tiffany's. We were talking about it doing 
uh, set it up. But we all, you also hit a nerve. You hit a good nerve for for Rebecca because her all time favorite rom com is uh, music and lyrics. So she is a big Drew Barrymore stand. Music and lyrics is one of my all time favorite rom coms. I am friends with the with the director because I'm friends with their kid. Um, oh, nice. So the, there's a band called Lawrence, which is Clyde oh, and Gracie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, I saw them. They opened for the Jonas Brothers this summer. They did. They are open yeah. for the and their father is Mark Lawrence, director of music and lyrics. I did and not know that. Feelings rhymes with feelings. <laughs> um, <laughs> music and lyrics is an all time smash in my opinion. I think it's one of the best rom coms ever made. Um, I love that feeling movie so, so validated right now. I, I know I love that movie so much. I think it's incredible. I mean, Hugh Grant, like, what's going on there? He's incredible. You know, he's an incredible rom com lead. That's a great one. That's a really good one. Music and lyrics. Yeah. Do you have any other like? As far as your rom-com origins go, so to speak, do you remember sort of when you got into that genre or what got you into it? Yeah, I mean, the the movies that obviously all the Nora Ephron films have are, are, are an entryway for me. But it, I will say, like, you know, I think the common misconception is that I I'm not that like rom-coms are less interesting to me than romantically funny things and and funny romantic things i like things that are romantic i like things that are funny and so a lot of that comes into the genre but like the notebook for example i haven't seen since i was a kid um you know i think i'm really drawn to there's a movie called la story which is a steve martin movie which is the perfect example of tone and jokes and like rom-com-y that i'm really drawn to so i would suggest you give that one a watch it's an incredible film i also really like the sort of code era 1950s films, those are more slapstick. They're more screwball, but they are romantic. You know, even even though the job of those movies was to not be romantic, you know, you couldn't show sexy romance. So they would come up with these other weird ways to do it with innuendo. And I was like, that's so cool. But they're also old. And because they're old and black and white, there is a romance there is a sense of romance that we associate with those movies, which I always wonder about. I'm like, is Casablanca a romantic film or do we romanticize Casablanca because it represents the old movies, you know, like, but was that also what the case was when it came out? And so I'm always trying to juggle what and understand nostalgia and the way we view view films in that way. But I would say it was really those obviously the Albert Brooks movies as well. If you've ever seen Modern Romance, that's a great one or um uh, coming to America. It's not not coming to America. It's uh, it's the one where they drive across the the country and they go to Vegas. It's really good. Yeah. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's wonderful. And Disney movies. I like Disney a lot. I'm kind of like a Disney nerd. I think we've maybe explored. You know, I, I think we've. I don't think we've talked about that directly, but subconsciously we've talked about that. Yeah, I feel like every person, at least for our generation, uh, like Disney is sort of where that that flame starts, especially with the sort of renaissance of like the night, like you said, with nineties movies, I feel like it had that mm-hmm. really good balance of like romantically funny things. And I think that skews a little more, you know, family friendly in Disney movies, but I think it's the same sort of thesis in Disney movies as it is in kind of rom-coms of the same era. I completely agree. And I mean, even a movie like Tangled, which is a more recent one, great rom-com, like hilarious rom-com premise, princess stuck in a castle and like inept dude like glenn powell shows up and is like i'm a thief <laughs> and like you know like it's it, it's to me it's all the same you know it's all the same kind of charm and energy and wit mm-hmm. and i i love it also serendipity i'm I'm jumping around here but oh my god it's a very 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 good one 
I bring it up because I've, as I've been acting in this movie, I've been watching like the performances that I really enjoy. John Cusack is one who I think is just wonderful. Um, and there's a movie called Marty, which I don't know if it's necessarily a rom-com so much as it is like a slice of life character story about a first date that happened to also win best picture and best actor. Um, mm-hmm. So I would go check that movie out. It's an old film, 1950s, but it's incredible. We were literally just talking on Thursday um, about how like we think that there need to be like some legitimately like like high budget, well-made award winning rom-com. So I definitely mm-hmm. want to check that one out to see if I can add it to my mm-hmm. like my bank up here. But it's so funny that you mentioned Serendipity because that's one of my dad's favorite rom-coms. And he showed it to me when I was a kid, along with music and lyrics, because that's my parents favorite um, rom-com as well. They're great. I mean, Serendipity is one that it's I, I love that it's like both the the theme of the film and the location of the coffee shop like it's it's great. frozen it's hot like chocolate genius. yeah like what came first did someone just go to serendipity and like oh rom-com like you know I, I really wonder how that came together this you kind of addressed like some of this but like i was gonna ask like what's more important in a rom-com getting the romance right or getting the comedy right because i know like i think a lot more films these days struggle to find that balance between the romance and the comedy but what do you think is more important for the movie um, well, I would say they're two different, like, tack, like you tackle them differently. So I think with the romance, it's all about the chemistry between the two leads. So, you know, also when you make these movies, for example, in dating, I did not have the opportunity to chemistry read. And I do like Jabuki and Francesco's chemistry, but I think it's a different, it's a very unique type of chemistry they have. Monica and Diego have what I think is the best chemistry on a screen beside like next to Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. I'm very proud of their chemistry. I think they have something very, very unique and special. And that's because we did extensive chem reads. You know, uh, they were over Zoom, but we did the work. We sussed it. We felt it. We cut it together. Um, Xmas, an interesting kind of chemistry. They candidly, you know, like they were the actors that the producers in the studio wanted to put together. I didn't put, you know, Leighton Meester and Robbie Amell in a room and make them, you know, have coffee and and get, shoot their angles. And nor should they have to. They're both stars in their own right, you know. But I think it's always funny that you kind of sometimes have to go uh, and, and try these chemistry things. And that's why even in the 90s and earlier, you would, when you had chemistry, you kept making them. Julia Roberts and George Clooney or, you know, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan or... Uh, you know, go back earlier. I'm I'm obviously blanking here, but like if you, oh, Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson, if you had it, you knew it worked. So it was set up to succeed. So once you have that, that's where the romance comes from. So it's romance is all in the casting. The comedy, I think people do forget to your point. People forget when you make a rom-com, you need to ask yourself this question. This took me four movies to figure out. Is this scene funny or is it romantic or is it somewhere in between? And mm. if so, why is it in between? And that's, I think something you need to be very conscious of. And some people just forget. It's so obvious. It's so in front of us. It's called a rom-com. But that doesn't mean that you would approach every scene with the mentality of, is this scene funny or is this scene romantic? That's It's like so stupid. It just might work to think that way. Um, so, and even I forget that in the past five days of shooting have not necessarily asked that question at the beginning of a scene. Yeah, thank you. Like, I really like that um, mix of like, if it's both, then why is it both? I'm like mm-hmm. always asking my students the same thing. I'm like, why are you talking about it in this way if you couldn't be talking about it another? Or like, why are these two ideas somehow connected? Like, it's I won't go into the details of their papers, but it's like the thing that's been on my mind about like how to connect these like main ideas and these major themes that might seem disparate, but are actually like 
connected in some way. What kind of writing do you teach? I teach um, academic writing. So just like at the college level, like they cool. do like a personal essay, a rhetorical analysis essay, a research paper, and then an op-ed, um, just kind of standard college writing course. But like I do get some really interesting creative papers out of like that meditative side. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them loves rom. Like one of my students loves rom-coms. She's written about a rom-com for every single paper so far. That's so. awesome. Okay, cool. I wanted to round back around to your TikToks before we sort of uh, wrap up here, because you are not only sort of breaking down uh, what it takes to be a filmmaker, but you're also making these wonderful sort of little mini movies, or you were before you started shooting 31 Candles. And they're kind of little tiny rom-coms in and of themselves. And every single day they would pop up on my feed and I'm like, oh, there's another one. So where did that idea sort of spawn from and how do you go about making those? That came from the lack of creative control I had during the Xmas edit process. And I was like, I need to control something artistically. I need to express myself. And the, you know, I've tried vlogging in the past. I've tried journaling. I've tried, you know, meditating. And and none of those things really felt like I was, it was a daily practice that was like helpful to me. But then I started randomly, you know, on the the, the funniest thing is I got a new lens. It's actually right here. I got this little lens. It's an it's like a cheap you know, $100 50 millimeter prime lens, which is cheap comparatively to what a lens costs. And I had bought it from B&H Photo and I need, I need to test it. And so I put it on my camera and I pointed it in my bedroom and I started walking and just started talking to myself and I recorded it. And then I put that in Premiere and I was like, huh, this kind of feels like a scene from a movie. And then I uploaded it to TikTok and it got like 100,000 views. And I was like, whoa, this was a little vignette from a movie. And then I was like, okay. And then some time went on. And I was like, what if I just did this every single day? What if I just forced myself like a vlogger or a journal entry that I had to just keep doing this every single day? At least one out of seven could be interesting. And so that's kind of what happened. It became this challenge of where am I going to put the camera? What am I going to say? And I got inspired by like, artists like you know i had gone to the scene the hopper exhibit and you know you learn about his process oh i'm only going to go out there at five in the morning and paint the skyline you know it, these rules madison avenue project like and i like the idea that i had rules i could only i could never cut i had to make it up on the spot you couldn't write it you know it had to be under a minute and it became very therapeutic and it became something I look forward to and it became something where I felt accomplished. And sometimes by doing, it's the same as making your bed, you know, the psychology of making your bed. If you make your bed in the morning, you're going to have felt accomplished. You're going to go have a better day. So I was able to feel less creatively behind if I completed one of these things. And it obviously also educated a lot of the style that I've now adapted for my next movie. Um, there's a scene, many scenes very much inspired by, some of the exact shots from that movie, from those vignettes that are now just movified. Awesome. Well, we are going to let you go so you can go back to filmmaking. But before we let you go, is there any, uh, do you want to plug your socials or where we can find your movies, that kind of thing? Sure. Well, you know, Xmas on Amazon Freebie, November 17th, uh, coming out. Leighton Meester, Robbie Amell, Michael Hitchcock, Catherine Greenwood, uh, Stephen Hoy, Veronica whose last name I cannot pronounce, but she's so funny. And uh, TikTok star, who actually someone I connected with on TikTok and said, hey, do you want to come to Kelowna, Canada and make a movie? And she did. And she's one of my favorite characters in the whole film. So never, you know, always goes to show you, follow your favorite creators on TikTok and then cast them in your work. Um, <laughs> and uh, socials, Jonah Feingold on Instagram, the Jonah Feingold on TikTok. I'm a big fan of what you both are doing. 
and thank you for thank supporting you. The, the genre and supporting independent artists like myself and it means the world and um if i can i'll get uh we'll, we'll recircle i'll get some xmas and at midnight posters sent your way for for the rooms or dating in new york or all three we can do all it but it was like what you're like why is this just an art exhibit to the collective works of jonah feingold but um yeah i appreciate you guys having me on the show thank you yeah, of course. And if you want to follow the show on socials, we are Get the Pass Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. We are on Letterboxd at The Pass Pod. If you want to follow me on socials, I'm at Maggie Rachel underscore on Instagram, spelled R A C H A E L, Maggie underscore Rachel on Twitter, and Maggie Rachel on TikTok. If you'd like to follow me on socials, you can find me at With a Hero on Twitter and at King of the Chess People on Instagram. Hello, editor and co-host Maggie here, poking her head in post-recording to let you know that at the time, we had no idea what title we were doing next because scheduling things meant we recorded things in a weird order this week, but I can tell you for certain that next week's episode will be 2018's Set It Up starring Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. We know we promised it to you last episode, but adulting is hard and scheduling is weird, so you will be getting it next episode. See you then!